Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Undead giants and crippled Stark wargs, twisted demon monkeys and bastard kings, welcome to another Still Smug Book Talk bonus episode. It's your leal servant, Sir Duncan the Fearsome, Lord of Castle Sterling and bearer of the Valyrian Steel Greatsword, Dark Warrior. Today we'll be covering Game of Thrones Season 7, Episode 1, Dragonstone, from a book reader's perspective, examining crossover material, book nods, and new information that may inform mysteries that book readers have long speculated about. There will be numerous book spoilers ahead, so if you don't want to have events and information from A Song of Ice and Fire revealed to you, now is your chance to tune out. That being said, adventurous show watchers who don't mind book spoilers are welcome to join us today. I'll try to discuss and explain things in a way that non-book readers can follow along to and maybe gain some cool insight or context to the show from the book information. Spoilers in 5, 4, 3, 2... In the book series, after serving the Frey Pies to the Bolton soldiers, Wyman Manderley says, Wash it down with arbor gold and savor every bite. I know I shall. In relation to this, on the TV show, Arya served Walder Frey himself a Frey Pie at the end of last season, and to start off this season, she's washing it down with arbor gold and poisoning all the rest of the phrase with wine. In doing so, she's actually kind of doing Lady Stoneheart's job, who, as you know, in the books, is wandering around the north with the Brotherhood Without Banners, luring and murdering as many phrases as possible in retaliation for the Red Wedding. For show watchers who don't know who Lady Stoneheart is, I'm sorry, that's just too big a spoiler, I can't tell you that. But the fact that Arya basically just killed all the phrase sort of takes away... Lady Stoneheart's purpose, um, in, at least in the show context, so it's probably a sign that we won't be getting Lady Stoneheart at all. As well as that, there's the return of Beric Dondarrion, who um, in the books breathed the fire of life back into this certain character who became Lady Stoneheart. That's as much as I'll tell you. But the fact that Beric is still around probably signals that Lady Stoneheart does not exist on the TV show, as was speculated last season and the season before that. So I have my own theory about Lady Stoneheart. Since Beric Dondarrion gave his life when he passed his fire on to her and resurrected her, um, I had a theory that Stoneheart would end up resurrecting John in the books or sacrificing her, you know, life to save John in some way, considering the band the Brotherhood Without Banners is heading north. Maybe Beric's reason for being revived as they ponder in this episode, um, you know, why does R'hllor keep bringing him back? Sandor says that he's he's not a special person. There's nothing special or unique about Beric. Why does R'hllor keep bringing him back? And Beric says he wonders every day. 
Maybe his reason for being revived repeatedly is to take Lady Stoneheart's place and eventually save or revive John um, the way that he revived Stoneheart in the books. Beric may give him his own fire to John to revive him or could be there to save him at a at an important moment. Who knows? Another interesting thought about John while we're talking about him is since he's died and come back, he hasn't interacted with the White Walkers or Whites at all. But John is sort of a White himself at this point. If, if the White Walkers create their Whites, the, you could consider those Ice Whites, and whereas John is sort of a, a Fire White where he's been resurrected by the fire of R'hllor, theoretically, but he's undead. You know, Benjen, cold, or cold Hands in the books, says that, you know, the blood stops circulating, and that's why his hands are black. So it's it's unlikely that Lady Stoneheart or Beric or John have a pulse or, like, a fully functioning body at this point. They're basically reanimated by some fire magic. So what happens with the White Walkers when they interact with John, they have the the power to control the Ice Whites, will they be able to take over the autonomy of John's body and use him against his own people? I doubt it, but an interesting idea to ponder. Back to Arya. The Lannister campfire may actually change Arya's mind about going to King's Landing. You know, she told them, I'm going to King's Landing. When they asked why, she said, I'm going to kill the Queen dramatic pause and then everybody laughs i thought that was really funny actually it ballsy of uh of aria to say that but every time she asked them a question every answer they gave was about their families and how much they love their families the one guy said you know my my family my mother taught me to always be nice to strangers when he you know when he's offering her the rabbit and the wine and another guy says he was wishes he was helping his dad on the fishing boat a third guy says that his wife's pregnant and how he wants to be with her and he hopes their child is a girl. So, um, you know, they're all reminiscing about their families and that may, you know, she came up to them sort of hoping for a reason to kill these people, I think. You know, she's asking them questions. They're like, oh, we didn't have anything to do with that. We're just chilling. We're, you know, we're peaceful people. And so she went from a killing mindset, seeing Lannister soldiers who, you know, are enemy family for her to um, empathizing with these people and hearing them talking about family. She went from a killing oriented mind state to a family oriented mind state potentially. So this could signal some type of change in her attitude. It's unusual that we would, you know, encounter a group of soldiers that are this nice and cool. So this, it must be important in some way for the writers to write these characters that way. And I assume that it's, you know, could, because they're, they're influencing Arya. It was also interesting that when the guy hinted that, um, or when he, he mentioned his wife is pregnant and he wants wants to have a daughter, Arya asks him, "Why do you want a daughter?" You know, because it's the men who are the lords and who, um, you know, pass on the the dynasty and the name and everything like that. And he 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 says that you know when when the guy man gets old, his daughter takes care of him. Sons would go off and get killed in a war, and so that may have you know, hinted to Arya that daughters are important to, to a family and may have made her realize that her own family would want to have her back. I'm sure she's gotten word of Sansa and Jon inhabiting Winterfell again, and possibly that Jon is the king in the north. So it's entirely possible that she may have a change of heart and go to team up with her family or at least see them.
All right, our next cool book nod is The Gravedigger. When we run into Sandor, he's with the Brotherhood Without Banners, and there's a cool scene where he's, you know, he. it's obvious that there's been a character transformation with him, and he's feeling empathy and regret, and he's a different person than he was years past. But we see him out digging a grave for the two people that he, you know, betrayed and sort of left stranded for death at this farm when he was with Arya on his way to the uh, the Airy. So obviously seeing him digging a grave is a nod to the idea, the theory that the Hound is the anomalous, mysterious grave digger on the Quiet Isle. When Brienne meets up with Septon Marybald and his dog, Dog, they end up going to this place called the Quiet Isle where there's sort of a monk colony there ruled or you know not ruled but lead, led by this guy called the elder brother and uh, as they're as they arrive to the island they're going up to the houses they sort of, they pass a, a lich yard and there's a big guy with his face covered a novice for the monks who Brynn takes note of and it's interesting that his face is covered really convenient you know that for if it was the hound because his face is so burned up he's really recognizable so his face is covered and he's walking with a limp um, which the Hound may have acquired after being left for dead and really brutally injured um, the last time we saw him. Um, so Brienne and Sept and Marybald are walking along, and Marybald's dog, Dog, runs over to this this grave digger with his face covered and you know runs up to him, and the guy bends over and pets him. That could be another hint that it's the Hound because he, he loves dogs, gets along with dogs, he has a dog name and everything. So they keep walking along, Brienne and Marybald and the elder brother, and further up the hill, they see the stable, and there's an, an ornery horse in there that's been problematic. And the elder brother tells them that this was actually Sandor Clegane's horse, that it was the hound's horse, Stranger, who is a super badass horse, hard to control. Only the hound could temper that horse. So the elder brother claims that he found the hound dying, that... He talked to him for a brief bit, and after the hound died, he buried him under a cairn and put put um, you know boulders and rocks and stuff on top of it to prevent carrion eaters from eating the hound's body. He he says that the hound is dead and Sandor is at rest, which he may be speaking metaphorically because he you know had told Brienne and Marybald that he himself had died on the trident when he used to be a warrior. But apparently, you know, in reality, his, quote, death only consisted of a major life change. So it's possible that he's taken the hound, or now Sandor, under his wing, and he's been sort of giving him, psych, you know, um, psychological help and helping him start a new life. So the hound is dead and gone, that persona, but Sandor is, you know, still living and at rest mentally, peacefully, um, without the, the anger and, and Trump trauma that the, um, the hound suffered constantly. So basically seeing Sandor digging a grave on the show is a cool book nod that hints that Sandor is the grave digger. We just saw on screen on the show, Sandor is a, the grave digger. He's digging graves. So that was really cool. The next pretty neat book crossover that we have is the appearance of Ed Sheeran. Most people probably don't remember this, but Ed Sheeran made an appearance in A Feast for Crows when that actually didn't happen. I'm just joking around. But the song that Ed Sheeran was singing, Hands of Gold, is a nice book crossover. 
When Tyrion moved to King's Landing um, in place of Tywin to serve as Hand of the King for Joffrey, he had secretly stashed away Shay in the city so he could go visit his, his whore girlfriend whenever he wanted to. And he would often, you know, sneak away at night, go visit her. One day he discovered that she had hired a singer named Simon Silvertongue who had been entertaining her. And Simon, being oh so clever, realized that it was the hand of the king coming to visit this this woman and wrote a song about Tyrion called Hands of Gold. It was about Tyrion secretly sneaking away to visit this this whore, and he planned to use it to blackmail Tyrion to get Tyrion to sign him up to sing at Joffrey's wedding. So he sung the song to Tyrion, and was like, what a nice song, isn't it? And Tyrion's like, haha, yeah, like, have you sung it publicly? And he's like, no, I haven't, and I won't, as long as you hook me up with this gig, I want to play at Joffrey's wedding, it'll get me a lot of exposure. So he's blackmailing Tyrion with this song. Tyrion basically tricks him and has Bronn murder him. But um, <laughs> So the song never gets out in the books. But, you know, often Tyrion reminisces about it, and he actually quite enjoyed the song. It's a good song. So he finds himself singing the song to himself um, when he's in his cups after leaving Westeros, when he's traveling throughout the, the free cities and whatnot. For hands of gold are always cold, but a woman's hands are warm. Referring to his necklace of golden hands and the hand of the king pin in gold that he wears on his chest. So it's funny because Arya says to the uh, the singer, who happens to be Ed Sheeran, she says, you know, I've never heard that song. And he says, it's new. So um, in, the, in the book context, Simon Silvertongue wrote the, the song and Tyrion killed him and prevented the song from going public. So nobody ever heard it except Tyrion. It seems like in book or in, in the TV show context, the story is a little different. What I would guess is that after Tyrion's trial, where it was exposed publicly that he had a secret whore, some bard decided to write the song about him after the fact. So um, it's relatively new and uh, just was created in a different way on the TV show than in the books. But it's really cool that they brought it up because it's an awesome song. And if you stay tuned... I have a, an acapella version of the song that I recorded over the past couple days, so I'll play that at the end to, uh, to send this bad boy out. But the inclusion of this song on the TV show could mean a few things. It might be hinting, bringing up golden hands and women, <laughs> that the Valonqar prophecy could be possible, that Maggie the Frog, who gave Cersei all of her predictions about how many kids she'd have and, you know, the new beautiful queen that would take everything from her, the part of the prophecy they left out on the TV show is that the um, there's a, supposed to be somebody who appears in her life called the Valonqar, and that the Valonqar will squeeze the life from her by wrapping his hands around her throat and strangling her to death, basically. So she's always assumed that it would be Tyrion, but Tyrion used golden hands to strangle Shay, which could have been foreshadowing Jaime, who's you know was born two minutes later than Cersei, who's technically a little brother. Valonqar is Valyrian for little brother. Um, it could be foreshadowing Jaime using his golden hands to strangle Cersei, and that brings up another interesting part um, from the Arya plotline, which is if she's heading to. King's Landing, and she doesn't turn around and go to Winterfell, and she's planning on killing the queen, she could put on Jamie's face and use his <laughs> his golden hand to strangle her, and she may think it's Jamie, her little brother, strangling her to death, when in fact it's Arya. 
So that would be a cool little uh, little crossover and neat little possibility there. Since we're talking about Cersei and Jaime, let's mention the, how they were standing on that new map of Westeros. Jaime is standing on the fingers, which is where Littlefinger comes from, and Cersei is standing on the neck, which is where Moat Kaelin is and the um, the bog the bog people like the uh, the Reed family and whatnot. But it's interesting because Jamie's on the fingers and Cersei's on the neck. And if Jamie's going to strangle Cersei, you know, his fingers and her neck are important. So it's it could be strategic placement by the directors hinting at the uh, the future between them with this scene when they're standing on the giant map of Westeros that Cersei has had created. There's some cool symbolism in that scene as well. I think the creation of this new map symbolizes Cersei's grand vision of a new Westeros ruled by her. So she wants to build a new Westeros, and to start, she's building a map of it, nice and big. But it interestingly parallels the scene with with uh, Danny when she arrives at Dragonstone, because you know she she goes in, she sees the throne room, she finds the map room, and she's walking along and gently caressing her fingers on the edge of the map over the surface, whereas Cersei in dealing with her map is trampling all over it and stepping all over Westeros. It sim- could symbolize the uh, difference in rulership techniques that Danny and Cersei would have, that Cersei will just walk all over everybody to get what she wants. Whereas, you know, Danny, you can't say she's not self-centered or, you know, interested in acquiring power and wealth. She is. But I think at her core, she does really want to rule justly so the the maps, the way they, that they treat their maps sort of may symbolize this um, metaphorically. Oh, talking about Cersei gives us a nice transition to our next book crossover, which is the Euron stuff. There's a cool potential book reference and allusion to ancient Valyria, um, where when Euron says that he's the greatest captain of the 14 seas, that sort of made me think of the 14 flames of Valyria, and could have be alluding to his um, his traversing of the Valyrian uh, doom, which he claims in the books he's the only successful person to do. He says that he's explored ancient Valyria and survived to tell the tale, and he has something to prove it in the books, which may be his gift. Yeah, you know, but we'll get there in a minute. But I think he's just tricking Cersei into thinking he wants marriage. I think he wants to earn her trust and then sabotage her and give King's Landing to Danny to win her hand. He tells Cersei, since I was a boy, I wanted to marry the most beautiful woman in the world. So here I am with a thousand ships and two good hands. This seems to me to be a reference to Helen of Troy, who was queen of Sparta, the daughter of Zeus and Leda, and wife of King Menelaus. Greek mythology considered her the most beautiful woman in the world. During a tense battle of suitors, all seeking Helen's hand in marriage, Helen's surrogate father Tyndareus worries of retaliation against whoever is chosen to marry Helen. Odysseus suggests he have the suitors swear a solemn oath to defend the chosen husband against potential retaliation by other suitors. The oath became known as the Oath of Tyndareus. When Paris, a Trojan prince, abducts Helen and whisks her away to Troy, Menelaus calls upon the Oathsworn to fight with him to return her home, and thus begins the Trojan War. Oft quoted in regards to Helen, Christopher Marlowe wrote in his 1604 tragedy, Dr. Faustus, 
Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burned the topless towers of Ilium? Game of Thrones, and especially A Song of Ice and Fire, is full of references to history, and this seems to be a cool little nod to Helen of Troy and a huge war to come. The most beautiful woman in the world line, said by Euron, also may have further significance for Cersei. If Cersei eventually realizes he's actually talking about Daenerys when he said the most beautiful woman in the world, that line may reference Maggie the Frog's prophecy of a younger, more beautiful queen arriving and taking from Cersei everything that she loves. There's also an, another interesting parallel between Euron, Greyjoy, and a book character who has not been in the TV show, and probably will not be. Um, this character is called Euron Waters, who in the books Cersei appoints to be Master of Ships and then Grand Admiral of King's Landing's fleet. Orain ends up betraying her and sailing away with her fleet. This could foreshadow Euron betraying Cersei as well, and potentially attempting to um, win the favor of the Dragon Queen. The next cool little book crossover could be Euron's gift to Cersei, which he says, you know, I don't expect you to trust me. I'm going to earn your trust by finding you a badass gift, and I'm not coming back until I have it. So there are a couple things that this could be. It could be the dragon horn that Euron obtained from ancient Valyria in the books. We talked about that a little bit on the main podcast, but basically he has this horn that when blown allows the owner of the horn to take over a dragon and basically control the, the dragon. So he has a guy blow it to show its power at the king's moot when when um, Asha or Yara on the TV show is trying to become queen of the Iron Islands. And this guy's blowing the horn and, and these runes are glowing orange and lighting up on the horn like the horn's on fire. And he's blowing it and it's the loudest thing that people have ever heard and he just blows it for a, you know, a couple minutes straight it seems. And then he collapses because the horn has, you know, basically burned his lungs from the inside out and the guy dies. So that would be kind of a cool crossover to have appear on the TV show. If he gets this horn and does give it to, to Cersei and he's genuine and Cersei could steal one of Daenerys's dragons or more than one. And that could be a really bad thing. And dragon fire and dragons under the control of the Mad Queen would be a bad, bad combo. Another possibility for Euron's gift could be that it is Tyrion. Tyrion, as you may remember, was already given as a gift to Daenerys by Jorah after he captured him. And Euron's talk with Cersei in this scene included references to her trying killing her brother. She says, you know, why should I trust you? You killed your brother. And he's like, I did. You should try it. It's, it was awesome, you know. So that could be foreshadowing him providing her with her other younger brother to kill. Men and boys have also been given as gifts before in Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire. Littlefinger gave Cersei Olivar from his whorehouse to testify against the Knight of Flowers, Sir Loras, and that basically got him locked up. And then Littlefinger gave Lady Olena a gift to use against Cersei, which was Lancel, who got her locked up. So this is not unknown for people to be given as gifts in this universe. So it could be Tyrion. I'm thinking it probably would be the dragon horn, but because that would you know create more of a, more drama and action. But it could go either way, or it'd be something entirely different that we haven't thought of. The next book crossover that we have is the appearance of Alice Karstark, who in the books is not a primary character. She's not a secondary character. 
Hell, she probably hardly, hardly qualifies as a tertiary character, <laughs> but she does make a few um, appearances, or she's mentioned, at least, in the books. In the first book, A Game of Thrones, her betrothed, Darren Hornwood, and her two of her brothers, Eddard and Torin, are killed in the Battle of the Whispering Wood by none other than Jaime Lannister himself. In A Storm of Swords, after Jaime escapes, Rickard Karstark, her father and lord of, of Carhold, um, promises Alice's hand to whoever, whomever could bring him the Kingslayer. Vargo Holt maims and captures Jaime with the hopes of gaining Alice in marriage, which would have given him the chance to become lord of Carhold. Rob Stark actually executes Rickard after um, he murders Willem and Lannister and Tion Frey um, for, for treason, basically. And that turns every, the, uh, the Karstark family against Rob and contributes to his downfall eventually. Um, in A Dance with Dragons, Melisandre tells Jon Snow of a vision she's had of a young girl on a dying horse riding to the wall. She thinks that it's Arya, but it turns out when this woman arrives that it's actually Alice Karstark. And um, when Alice arrives, after a series of events, she ends up being betrothed to Sigorn, who's a wildling in Magnar of Then, creating a new noble house that would claim Carhold should um, the current Lord of Carhold die. Interestingly, it seems that on the show, Alice Karstark is already Lord of Carhold, since she's at this meeting with the King of the North and pledging the house loyalty to Jon. Our next crossover isn't really a crossover, but it's just more of an interesting revelation to uh, that book readers might appreciate. And it takes place when Sam is pouring through the books that he's stolen from the locked-up area at the Citadel. And when he's flipping through the pages, you can see a picture of the dagger that the cat's paw used to try to murder Bran way back in season one when Catelyn Stark saved his life. And then um, his summer, his direwolf came in and mauled the guy. Um, so there's that dagger that we were wondering where it came from. It was Valyrian steel. And interestingly, there's a drawing of that dagger in the book that Sam flips through. And apparently on one of the pages, according to the internet, there's information that suggests that dragon glass could be used to cure grayscale. Apparently, on the page opposite of the page where Sam sees the information that tells him that there is a mountain of dragonglass at Dragonstone, there's a cut-off paragraph that seems to indicate that suggesting dragonglass may be a cure for grayscale. It says, Considering the only person to be cured of grayscale that we've heard of was Shireen Baratheon, and the mine of dragonglass is at Dragonstone, where Shireen grew up, it seems likely... And then the quote stops, so it hints that um, Shireen may have been cured of uh, her grayscale by the dragonglass, which is uh, available in abundance at Dragonstone. Whether it was intentional or a side effect from being around it is unknown, or if, even if that's you know, actually the case is unknown, but it's certainly an interesting concept to ponder. You can also see in the book that dragonglass was considered sacred, that if eaten there's no negative side effects or at least nothing major allegedly but whoever wrote this is not sure um, and it suggests that it could be a cure for illnesses and disease so yeah it's gonna be interesting to see what happens with that maybe sam will find some dragon glass and try to cure up jorah which would be really cool because i like that character so i hope he doesn't just just uh, die 
hopefully he's still recoverable at this phase as well of the, uh, the dragon scale because it's certainly consuming him. On another page, uh, this paragraph is allegedly legible. Um, that's, let's try saying that five times fast. Allegedly legible, allegedly legible, allegedly legible, allegedly legible, allegedly legible. Wow, that was pretty good. Um, there's basically a paragraph that talks more about dragon, dragon glass, and uh, it says, The Valyrians were familiar with dragon glass long before they came to Westeros. They called it, and there's some Valyrian words there, which translates to frozen fire in Valyrian. And Eastern texts tell of how their dragons would thaw the stone with dragon flame until it became molten and malleable. The Valyrians then used it to build their strange monuments and buildings without seams and joints of our modern crafters. When Aegon the Conqueror forged his seven kingdoms, he and his descendants would often decorate their blades with dragon glass, feeling a kinship with the stone. The royal fashion for dragon glass ornamentation soon spread throughout the seven kingdoms to those wealthy enough to afford it. Hilts and pommels were and are the most common decoration, for dragon glass is too brittle to make a useful crossguard. Indeed, its very brittleness is what relegates it to the great houses and the most successful merchants. So that's pretty cool. They used to use dragons to uh, to sort of melt it and then shape it however they wanted. So we've heard of, of dragon steel. Maybe dragon steel or Valyrian steel is some sort of combination of steel and dragon glass superheated by dragon fire. Um, maybe it, it gives an extra sharpness to the steel that it wouldn't normally have. And uh, there seems to be some type of magic involved in the process of creating these blades as well, which are folded thousands and thousands of times, you know, way more than normal steel is folded um, in its creation process. But uh, yeah, I wonder if there's some sort of connection between dragon glass and Valyrian steel or dragon steel, um, which we don't know are the same things, but you've, you know, we know of Valyrian steel and then dragon steel is allegedly what the, uh, the last hero used to uh, fight the White Walkers. Our next crossover is further confirmation that walkers, White Walkers and Whites, bring the cold with them. In the books, the word is that the cold itself is, is sort of a weapon, that not only do you have to fight the White Walkers, but just the condition, the environmental condition that, is, that, hap that occurs when they arrive is a weapon itself. On page 853 of A Dance with Dragons, Tormund says to John, he says, You know nothing. You killed a dead man, I, I heard. Man's killed a hundred. A man can fight the dead, but when their masters come, when the white mists rise up, how do you fight a mist, crow? Shadows with teeth, air so cold it hurts to breathe, like a knife inside your chest. You do not know. You cannot know. Can your sword cut cold? So apparently just the cold itself is uh, is difficult enough to deal with. Um, and then it's basically uh, what did Craster's daughters and wives referred to it as as white cold, where, um, you know, it's, it's essentially a mist. It's like pea soup fog and they're like lurking in it and they, they fight you. We've seen other evidence that that they bring the cold as well. When Rass was up at Craster's Keep after they murdered Lord, um, Lord Commander Mormont, he went out to go see Ghost and dumped a bunch of water on the ground basically to taunt Ghost and say, hey, hey you can't have the water. I'm just going to dump it. And um, a few seconds later, a cold started approaching, and he looked down and saw the ice, the uh, the water that he had jumped, just dumped, transform into ice really quickly. 
and he ran back towards the keep. But that was when a walker, a white walker, showed up to take one of um, Craster's sons. So we've seen evidence before that you know when they come, it gets really cold, really fast, enough to freak this guy out and make him run because he probably knew it was coming. At Hardhome, um, in season five, episode eight, um, when the the whites approached from the mountain, you saw a mist, a dark mist, cover the entire mountainside and then approach, and the walkers came inside of it. Um, they came right in the middle of the mist and and approached, shrouded in this in this white cold, basically. So there's more evidence that they bring cold with them. Um, and we've seen it a couple other times too. Once in that episode, a white walker, the one that John killed, you know, walked into the house, into the little, the structure where they had the dragon glass, where they just had just held their meeting. And he, he walks through these flames and the flames dissipate and die down as he, just as he approaches, which is super hardcore. Like he's so cold that it kills fire. And again, when um, last year in, in the door, when we uh, learned of Hodor's fate, as the White Walkers approached the cave where the Three-Eyed Raven and Bran are hiding out, the uh, the Children of the Forest basically had ignited a, a flame barrier to keep the Whites out. But when the White Walkers approached, the flames died right down and they were able to walk right over. So um, this is just all further confirmation that, as they say in the books, that the um, the White Walkers may or not, may not bring cold with them. There's another cool quote that discusses the possibilities. As Sam said to John in A Feast for Crows, the others come when it is cold, most of the tales agree, or else it gets cold when they come. Sometimes they appear during snowstorms and melt away when the sky's clear. They hide from the light of the sun and emerge by night, or else night falls when they emerge. So there's definitely some confusion as to um, <laughs> how this works. If they come when it gets cold and use the cold to travel south, or if when they travel south they actually bring the cold or bring the night as opposed to just coming out at night. Uh, maybe night arrives whenever they come out. Uh, pretty interesting concept. But as far as this mist goes, um, we haven't seen any evidence yet on the show that the mist is sort of weaponized and really difficult to uh, to deal with. But uh, it'll be cool to see, you know, once this war starts and once this mist arrives, and the white cold, as uh, they call it, it'll be interesting to see how people react. I mean, potentially it could be cold enough to break the weaker of men by itself and uh, leave them vulnerable to slaughter by the whites. The last book crossover we have is just the appearance of the castle Dragonstone, which um, is significant to book readers who get a lot more context about its creation. But basically, that's the castle that that Aegon built when he came to the, the Seven Kingdoms in the first place. He landed at Dragonstone, constructed that castle, and then went from there to conquer the rest of the Seven Kingdoms. Um, considering that, you know, Valyrian's apparently were, you know, considered dragonglass sacred, that could be one reason why he decided to settle there. Um, now that we know more about dragonglass, it's a, it's, you know, a possibility that could have attracted him to that area. But either way, it was just cool to see that castle and, you know, know about the history behind it and Daenerys showing up to take it over is sort of like the second coming of Aegon 
arriving in Westeros for the first time and setting up shop at Dragonstone. And, you know, from there, she's going to move on to take on the rest of the Seven Kingdoms. It's going to be a fun, fun ride for sure. So that basically wraps up our Still Smug Book Talk bonus episode for today, covering Season 7, Episode 1 of Game of Thrones called Dragonstone. As promised, we'll send it out with uh, my acapella version of Hands of Gold. And just to give you guys a little bit more information about this, I happened to come upon a video on YouTube a few weeks ago by this guy, Ryan Yunk, who did a really awesome version of Hands of Gold. He actually did one version and then re-recorded an EP version for um, an, an album he did with a bunch of Game of Thrones songs. Check it out. Search Ryan Yunk on YouTube. Ryan, Y-U-N-C-K. Pretty awesome stuff. But I really liked his version of Hands of Gold, so I did an acapella version of my own, and here you go. See you guys next week. For hands of gold are always cold, but a woman's hands are warm. He rode through the streets of the city, down from his hill on high. O'er the wines and the steps and the cobbles, he rode to a woman's side, for she was his secret treasure. She was his shame and his bliss And a chain and a keep are nothing Compared to a woman's kiss For hands of gold are always cold But a woman's hands are warm Stealing away in the darkness From the hour of the wolf till dawn no high lords, games, or machinations. With her all his cares were gone. For she was his hidden pleasure. She was his shame and his pride. And a view from a tower is nothing compared to a woman's eyes. For hands of gold are always cold, but a woman's hands are warm. For hands of gold are always cold, but a woman's hands are warm.